Good morning again. Um, right before we start, uh, a few months back, I had to switch translations um, to the ESV. I didn't have to, but the, the Bible I was using before to preach from just simply fell apart. And so I, I couldn't hold all the pages together. Pages were missing. And that's really bad when a pastor tries to turn to a, pastor, a text and go, oh, that isn't in my Bible. Um, so I just had to switch out Bibles, the one that I had uh, for study. So I'm using the ESV if you want to follow along with an ESV on the Bible version app. That's going to be the easiest way for you to uh, obviously follow me. But we are in Judges chapter 10. We're going verse by verse, and we are finally at a section where I think we might get a breather for a moment. And I thought it would be a really good time to introduce a gentleman named Jorge Augustus uh, Nicolas Ruiz de Santillana. Now, I don't know his, I mean, if you speak Spanish, you're going to be able to pronounce that a lot better than I do, but that's why he's known as George Santillana. And uh, I imagine everyone's familiar with George. Okay, let me tell you about his most famous quote, and maybe you'll know George. If you do not learn from history, you are doomed to repeat it. He was the philosopher at the turn of the century, which would have been the 1900s. He was Spanish, came over to America, was a philosopher, and really focused on the need to learn history in our everyday life. And he's talking about ancient history, Rome and Greece and Egypt, in order to understand where we are at today and how we stop avoiding the mistakes of the past by learning from the past. And he was not a believer. He was not coming from a Christian perspective. But if we're learning anything from the book of Judges this historical book of events that really occurred, it should be, the one thing that we should learn is we do not want to act like Israel and learn from their mistakes so we don't repeat the mistakes, whether it's in our homes, in our families, at work, in a church, or in a nation. We do not want to fall into the same repetitive behavior as Israel did during the days of Judges. Now, by chapter 10... We are about 300 years into the book of Judges. About 300 years have taken place, and you'd never believe what happened after Abimelech died. Abimelech died, who was wicked and evil in every sense of the word, and on the heels of his death, something wonderful happens in Israel for about 50 years. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, looking at two individuals who are not part of any Bible trivia question because they're only mentioned once in all of Scripture. No one names their kids after them, but they are foundational for 50 years. They are unknown, somewhat unimportant, but they're important. Unknown but important. They're not famous, but they are just as famous as we are when we walk with Christ. So let's pick it up in Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read through this, and we're going to be talking about two different geographical areas and in order to get your bearings about where this is, again, think of the city of Pueblo, county of Pueblo. Think of Calvary being Jerusalem, and Route 25 or Highway 25 is the Jordan River. And so as we're looking north, we have the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and Calvary sits at Jerusalem. This area that's being talked about in the first five verses is all on the north side. A lot of things happen on the north side because there's a lot of influence from the northern uh, countries in the area that are trying to influence Israel negatively. So all of this is happening 
um, on both sides of the Jordan River, sort of where Eagle Ridge area is. So if you think of that area, uh, even Highway 50 and 25, that intersection, so kind of in that area, and a little bit north of there, all of this is happening over there. Because we're not going to know the names of the cities. We don't know exactly where they are in Israel, but we know geographically they're kind of on that north side, kind of in the middle of the, of the city, especially right around 25, or in this case, the Jordan River. So let's pick it up. Verse 1 of chapter 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Ishkar, which is one of the tribes of Israel. And he lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim, which is, again, part of um, Israel's 12 tribes. And he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried at Shemir. His entire life spans two verses in Scripture. Certainly not incredibly important in the sense of his name being well-known. He's not famous. But he rose up and led Israel. Nothing negative, but nothing super positive either. But we assume that since there wasn't anything really negative, because Scripture points it out all the time, they did evil in God's eyes, or he did evil in God's eyes, or she did evil in God's eyes. God is very clear and very straightforward to point out when someone has done evil in their eyes, in his eyes. This man was raised up, led Israel, and judged 23 years, died and buried. Verse 3, after him arose Jer, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath-Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead, and Jer died and was buried in Kaman. All of this happening up in the northern part of Israel. Two people, Tola and Jer. Their mean, names don't mean anything significant, but they were faithful in judging Israel for the years that God had appointed them. And obviously, Jer in particular, having 30 sons who had 30 donkeys, which was a sign of great wealth. Each of the sons had a donkey, and they each had their own city. So he definitely had influence and power, and God somehow truly did indeed bless him. Because during his reign, there seems to be peace, there seems to be security, and nothing negative is happening. There are, I think, many times in our individual lives that we may feel like these two individuals. We serve a long time for the church. We serve our families faithfully for a long time. We serve uh, jobs for a long time. And we don't get a ton of recognition. People forget our names. They forget what we did. There's no plaque or statue honoring all that we've done. And we feel, at times, lost to history. Just like the name George Santayana meant nothing to us, yet his words have influence, but the name is unrecognizable. Just a blip in history. And I don't want you to think you are just a blip in history in God's plan. These two guys, one mention, two verses, and they're done. But God values every single blip of history of every single individual. Listen to what uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. He says, So if you ignore the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Just a blip. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called 
great in the kingdom of heaven. See, God's kingdom, which is vastly superior in importance to the earthly kingdom, God says there is importance here. And in order to be important in God's kingdom, simply obey me. Be holy, for I am holy. That's what he asks of us. And further on, this is interesting, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has this beautiful discussion with his disciples, uh, starting in verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, coming up to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm being baptized with? And they said to him, Well, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard of it, remember these are the twelve disciples, two of them are asking Jesus what, basically? We want to be your number one and two men. We want to be super important in your kingdom. And when the other ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Of course they were. Who are these two guys to want Jesus that, to get Jesus that, or to get from Jesus that incredible favor of being powerful and important in his kingdom? There's a sense of pride, there's a sense of jealousy that comes out there. And so Jesus calls them all together and says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise over them. And so he gives us a comparison and contrast. He says, I want you to look at how the Gentiles live. The Gentiles, when someone has a position of power, they have one thing in mind. How do I keep it and how do I extend it? How do I keep it? How do I extend it? How do I keep my power? How do I extend it? How do I force everyone under me to follow me, obey me? And in times like this, worship me. So Jesus said, that's how the Gentiles do it. The Gentiles get a power, and it goes to their head, and they get this power trip, and they think they own your choices, your decisions, your life, how you live. They're the deciding factor on what you are and are not able to do. And when you bow to them and acknowledge them, they're happy with you. When you resist that, they just call it tyranny, regardless if it's right or wrong. But that's how the Gentiles exercise rule and authority outside of God. It says, but, in verse 43, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all, a doulos, which means slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." The lesson in that, I think, is crystal clear. If you want to be important and have more than two verses written about you in God's book of Scripture, whatever it might be, the way to that is not to claim, I have authority, I have power, you submit to me, or else. The way to do it is to love on others and serve others 
first and foremost. To love others and serve others. The Gentiles, the ungodly, seeks after power to rule over others with force. The believer looks to the kingdom of heaven and looks at this world and says, how do I serve? Not be honored, not have the power, but how do I serve others in the name of Christ? Just like Christ did. He did not come to be served. He will come the second time as king of kings and lord of lords, and he will come riding on a war horse to submit all of his enemies under his feet. Yet foremost, humbly, not taking accolades to himself, not taking the power of the throne to himself, not calling down legions of angels in his right and power, but he submitted to the Father's will and lived as a servant. And Jesus says that is how you become great in the kingdom of heaven. That is how you become a person of renown and respect, of being a servant to others. When you get the mentality, you better obey me. Why is no one listening to me? Why is no one obeying me? That is a moment where God is saying, wake up. It's not about people obeying you or following your wisdom and advice. It starts with, how are you serving that person you think should be obeying you or following your advice? How are you serving them, first and foremost? That's the only question you need to remind yourself of. How am I serving? And these two guys in Judges served faithfully. Not men of great renown, great exploits, but they were important in God's kingdom because they faithfully served and protected Israel for up to 50 years in their lifespan. You would think at that moment that Israel had just had some really bad leaders, Abimelech, Abimelech, and the whole city of Shechem turning against God. And then they have two moments of respite. You would think that they would have taken George Santiana's words to heart, even though he hadn't spoken them yet. If you do not pay attention to history, if you do not learn from history, you are doomed to repeat it. Verse 6 of Judges chapter 10. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What was the evil they did? They served Baals and Asherahs and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. I believe it's six times so far in the ten chapters of Judges that Israel has forgotten what happens when you forsake God and you serve the foreign gods. When you forsake the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you adopt the gods of the Amorites, the Moabites, the Philistines, and the Sidites, they forgot. Because I don't even think that we need to go through the rest of the chapter to know exactly what's going to happen to them, do we? What happens when God's people forsakes God? What happens to them? Do they get blessed? Do they live happily ever after? Do they get all their wishes granted? Do they have easy times of harvest? Do they have rest from invaders? Are they free from bondage and slavery? Are they free from worry and fear? Are they free from pestilence and destruction? Do they just go on their merry way and life is a yellow brick road? 
Is that what happens to them when they forsake God? What happens every single time they forsake God? The hammer slams. The hammer slams, the hammer slams, the hammer slams, and God says, whoa, I need to awaken you to your plight. Every single time, God shocks them with reality and says, life is now going to be hard. And then what does Israel do? I love it. Oh, God, life is miserable. Help. And what does God do? Oh, okay, come on back. We'll take care of it. Uh Uh-uh, not this time. So they're now running around with other gods, worshiping other gods, serving other gods, honoring other gods, loving other gods, completely forsaking God, doing the opposite of what God has called them to do as his people, and they have not learned their lesson. Time and time again, they put their hand on the burner and they get burned. Time and time again, they cross the street and almost get hit. Time and time again, they fall into sin and disrepair and not learn their lesson. Um, we got, um, we got a, a new puppy a couple weeks ago, and uh, Luna is an amazingly smart dog because she knows if she does right, she gets a reward, a treat. And it is amazing how few times you have to positively reward an animal for that animal to sit, to stay, to shake, to to touch. I mean, it's amazing how quick they learn. Now, I know not every animal learns because I've had dogs that couldn't even learn their name after 10 years, but this one, in two weeks, bam, learning everything. Learning everything. Goes to the door when it needs to go out. Oh, what an amazing dog. Smart, smart, smart. My 10-week-old puppy at times can be smarter than the whole nation of Israel because they can't figure it out. They can't understand why they're not getting blessed, but life gets hard. And so life gets immediately hard when these two judges die and Israel is left to themselves. Listen to verse 7 through 9. So the anger of the Lord. Oh, that is never how you want a verse to start out about you. The anger of the Lord. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, just so you... um, just to make sure that we're all on the same page here, when the word anger comes up in the Old Testament, that is the Hebrew word for bloody nose. What happens when two people get angry with each other and can't control? They fight, right? What happens after a fight? Sometimes you get a bloody nose. All right? So God is saying, in essence, I am having a fight with you. That is how angry I am at what is going on because for 300 years you have not learned the cycle and you've rejected me and you've turned to a tree hoping it will answer your prayers. You've turned to a rock hoping it will listen to you. You've turned to a mountain hoping that somehow that mountain will hear your cries of praise and it won't. It will not. It cannot answer you back. It is not a real God or deity only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. So, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the Amorites. Now, the Philistines most likely came from Crete and intermarried within that entire area of the Mediterranean. And the Amorites, if you remember, were descendants of Lot. You know, Abraham's nephew, Lot, and when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed... 
Lot and his daughters retreated, and his daughters had relationships with him, and they had sons or brothers. I don't even know how that works, but really bad incestuous relationship that led to the Amorites. So they're no friends of Israel, no friends of God's people, and so God sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Amorites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Now, the Amorites, of course, were the sons, grandsons of Ham. Remember Noah's three sons? So one of the sons, Ham, and the Canaanites. So all of these people are not friends to God's people or to God. So for 18 years, they oppressed them. And the Amorites, verse 9 uh, the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. I would imagine after 18, 19 years of having invaders cross the Jordan River and keep poking you, keep taking all that you had, keep putting you into slavery, keep destroying your homes and raping your women and taking your children as slaves, yeah, I think I'd be a little bit miffed. I would notice it. I would go to myself, I wonder if God has a lesson in this for me. Life is hard. Why is life hard? It's not chance, and it's not karma. Life is hard because my decision was to reject God. And there should be no surprise if life gets hard when you reject God. When God is not the one on the throne, but you've put something else or someone else on the throne of your attention, your desire, and your passions, there is no surprise if life, finances, health, relationships, job, school gets hard. Now, not every hardship is because of it, but if there is hardship, that would be the first thing I'd look to and say, God, is there some way that I have missed something? Is there some way I have forsaken you, even in a part of my life. Are you trying to teach me something? Help me. Reveal to me my heart that I might immediately repent of it. It took Israel 19 years to wake up. Finally, in verse 10 through verse 14, Israel cries out to God, and God gives a very surprising answer to Israel. Verse 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Remember the word Baal, that title of deity, just simply meant a, a common local God. There isn't a God named Baal. It just means foreign God. So they, just, they, they admitted they confessed their sin. We have sinned against you in two ways. We have forsaken you, which means we stopped thinking about you, and we started thinking about other gods. So it's a double whammy of sin. It's bad enough just to forsake God, but they replaced God with another foreign god that they worshipped and served and honored. And and these gods that the Israelites served, especially during this time and age, they were wicked religions that these foreigners brought into the land of Israel. I mean, wicked religions. 
And we've, we talked about this when we looked at the life of Daniel many years ago. But these are gods, and, and when we looked at Nehemiah, these are gods that required of parents their firstborn child to be put upon a fire because those screams somehow opened up the ears of the bales so that they would hear their prayers. Disgusting, revolting. And yes, it should be very disgusting and revolting. And you should go, oh. But Israel had been living like that for 19 years without any thought that, wow, this is wrong. Their conscience and their knowledge of God's truth had been so seared and so hardened that sacrificing their own baby children didn't mean anything to them. It didn't gross them out. It didn't make them repulsive. They accepted it. But there was a breaking point, a breaking point for the nation of Israel, and they had to say, things have to change. So they cry out to God and admit the two faults that they had. They stopped worshiping God, and they substituted that worship for another God. And the Lord answers in verse 11, I think somewhat surprisingly, at the very first glance. The Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians? Here's the history lesson they should have learned. Listen, God repeats time and time again everything that happened in the life of Israel so that they would remember what they did. Every time they had a battle, they erected stones or they named a tree or they named a river out of God's honor so that every time they saw that pile of stones or that tree or that river or that well or their mountain, that they would remember what God did. And constantly they're talking about, remember what God did, remember what God did, because there is value and importance in remembering the history of what God has done in your life. It is never a bad thing to tell others Time and time again, do you know what God did in my life? When I was 10 years old, he did this. When I was 15 years old, he did this. When I was 60, he did this. Tell others what God has done in their life because God constantly reminds us, this is what I've done, this is what I've done. So God starts out this conversation. They're confessing their sin and God says, did I not save you from the Egyptians? Yes, you did. Did I not save you from the Amorites? Yes, you did. Did I not save you from the Ammonites? Yes, you did. Did I not save you from the Philistines? Yes, you did. Did I not save you from the Sidians also? Yes, you did. Did I not save you from the Amalekites? Yes, you did. And did I not save you from the Mananites? Monanites? Yes, I did. When they oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you, out of, your, out of their hand. So God, real quickly, showed them a period of history that probably was about 400, maybe 450 years. Didn't I do this? Yes. This, yes. This, yes. This, yes. This, yes, yes. And at that moment, I can imagine Israel going, oh, he's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. I knew it. Oh, that's right. I remember Great-great-grandpa told me about a story about someone that... Egypt. Yes, I remember Egypt. And so I can imagine Israel's getting pumped going, yes, you did. You saved us from them. You saved us from them. Yes, 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 yes. And God says, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, 
I will save you no more. Oh, let me, okay. Maybe I misread that because that's, that's not the God we understand from Scripture, right? He always saves when you cry out, right? He always says yes when you say help, right? Doesn't he? I just want to make sure I, the new translation I'm using isn't confusing me. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Imagine those words. I will save you no more. How do you even react to that? God, I thought every time I turned to you, you answered. I thought every time I cried out for help, you said yes. I thought every time I got myself into trouble and I'm reaping my own rewards that you would help me. What do you mean you will save me no more? You see, their confession may be true and genuine. They may have said, we've done this. We're crying out to you for help. But there was very little, if anything, in terms of acting differently. All they did was admit, I've got a fault. There was no change until they heard those words, I'll save you no more. God continues and says in verse 14, just to make sure they got the message, go, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Oh, God. You're supposed to help them. And what you've told them in essence is you forsook me. You gave me up and you started all this other God worship. You're in trouble. You need your prayers answered. You need relief from slavery and oppression. Why don't you go to those rocks and trees and hills and rivers and see, see how they're going to do? Go, that's who you're worshiping. Go to the person you're worshiping. Go to the God you're worshiping. See what their answer's going to be because we're no longer in a relationship because you've forsaken me and you've replaced me. So go to your replacement. How would you deal with that type of answer from God? Because that is not the kind of answer we're expecting, right? That is not the kind of answer that I was expecting in the book of Judges. I've always expected him to go, all right, come on, I'll extend my mercy to you once again. Let's go, I'll save you. I'll raise up a Gideon, I'll raise up a Samson later on. I'll raise up a judge that'll save you from the oppression. That's what they've been used to for 350 years, but for the last several, 19 years, they've rejected God completely. So God says, you've made your bed, lie in it. What possible hope do they have at this point? The God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the God who created all things, just told you, no, I'm not helping. Go find your help somewhere else. What would your reaction be to that? Some people may react by going, all right, fine. We're at war too then. I'll stick it out. We'll, we'll get the energy and power and somehow we're gonna get over this. You're no help to us. And they could have totally turned their back on God, completely. At least they knew to cry out to him. So he answers, Israel answers in the next several verses to the end of the chapter, 
what God was really looking for at the very beginning. And he had to use this tough measure, these tough words, to get them to a very real place of admission. Not just simply admitting what they did was wrong, but making a change in light of it. But words are not enough. Actions must be present. And so the people of Israel in verse 15, Israel cries out to God. Israel now hears the message from God, and Israel then goes and repents, and then God has another answer for them. And so the people of Israel, verse 15, said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they crowd again, asking for God's mercy and patience and acknowledges their sin, totally humble before God. They're not giving excuses. They're humble before God and they admit their sin. And they call it sin. They don't call it, we made a mistake. Oh, we forgot a little bit. No, no, no. They call it for what it is. We missed the mark and we sinned. And then verse 16 is the key. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Even though God had said, I'm not going to save you anymore, go find your help with the foreign gods, their response is not to say, okay, God, I guess we're done. Their response is to double down and do what is right, even without God's assurance of mercy and grace. They just simply said, you know what? We have messed up so badly that these gods that we serve are not going to help us. Let's get rid of them, put them away, burn them, tear them down, whatever it was. They got rid of their influence in their life, and they started serving God. What did that mean? What does that mean that they were serving God? They were praying to him. They were worshiping him. They were talking about him. They were thinking about him. They were putting him first and foremost in their life. Maybe they were recounting the, the Ten Commandments and starting to live according to that, not killing their children. Maybe that was a great start. And so they stopped doing what was evil and wrong, and they started doing what was right without any reassurance that God was going to save them. They knew it was so bad that they had to serve the one true God regardless of how he responds, I need to serve him. That is true repentance. Turning from sin unto this. Confession is admitting your sin. Repentance is now doing the opposite of that sin. Doing the opposite of that sin. And God's answer in that whole process is as he saw that happen, he was distraught over the misery that Israel was in. And so verse 17 and 18 come up. And the Amorites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah, all up in the northern part of uh, the region of Israel. And the people and the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Amorites? And he shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. So in all of this process, the invaders decided something is not happening right here in Israel, and we need to squash the rebellion or tyranny, whatever that might have been. And so they send an army, and Israel sends an army, and then Israel at the end of the chapter goes, someone's got to lead us. Who's going to lead us? But the stage has already been set. Their confession is real and genuine because their actions prove their confession was real and heartfelt and meaningful, and God responded by looking at their misery 
and having mercy and grace and tenderness. You will have to come back next week to find out what happens in chapter 11. And that's going to happen throughout the entire book of Judges. I'm not going to give you the whole story every single Sunday. But it is possible, very possible, that God will save them. Just saying. It's the whole story every single Sunday. But it is possible, very possible, that God will save them. Just saying. It's very possible. But let's get to uh, some take-home things real quick. Uh, The first thing is, I think, one of the important things for us to remember is that there are times in our real human lives that we may feel insignificant. I have felt insignificant at times. I have felt insignificant even here at times. And I know you have felt insignificant here and at home and at work and at school in your relationships. I know that you feel at times that no one knows you, no one understands you, that you are lost among a sea of people, that, that you could go an entire week and no one would notice if you were around. Have you ever felt that? I know you have, because you're just like me. I know I felt that, so I know you felt that. There is no reason, though, to feel that you are insignificant to God. Even though your name might not be mentioned in Scripture, you are mentioned in Scripture. You are God's chosen people. You are his family. His son has died for you. Listen to this. I mean, there's a million different verses that I could go to, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Yes. How can you be insignificant then if you are God's temple and his spirit resides in you? You are not insignificant. People may forget you. People may not understand you or get you. But according to God, you are so significant to his plan in the kingdom of heaven that he has put a down payment deposit of his spirit indwelling you. You are not insignificant in God's kingdom, ever. So that thought, that moment of depression can leave your mind that you are forgotten. You are not forgotten. God holds you in high esteem, so high in esteem, so high in importance, that he sent his only son, didn't he? To die. For who? For you. He would not have sent his son to die for you if you were not valuable and important in his eyes. He has tremendous value that he gave the life of his own son that you might be where you're at today and that you might have the hope of the future of heaven. And then lastly, I want us to be mindful that repentance is a change in the way that I think and it must lead to the way, oh my goodness, I messed that up. I should just read it. Repentance is a change in the way I think that leads to a change in the way I live. Repentance changes my thinking, but also changes my actions. And there's a beautiful verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God gives a promise to his people, to you and I, that if my people who called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. But notice what God says there. Pray and seek, but also turn from their wicked ways. It does no good to just simply have the words of confession 
if you don't have the action of repentance. So if you see in your life a sin that needs to be confessed, awesome. God is giving you that opportunity. But he also says, if you want to show me that that confession is true and genuine, you need to change. So if you're doing this, do that instead. The book of Ephesians, Paul has a wonderful uh, uh, statement here. I'm going to let the band come up so that shortens my time of speaking. Paul has a wonderful statement there in Paul has a wonderful statement there in Ephesians where he talks about if you have a problem lying, it's not good enough just to stop lying, but you have to tell the truth now. So be a truth teller. It says if you're lazy, then stop your laziness and start to work. So the principle goes: if you're unfaithful in a relationship to a spouse, stop the unfaithfulness, but also start faithfulness. So it's a stop and start relationship that God says is true, genuine repentance. It's not good enough just to stop doing the bad. We also need to do the holy and righteous at the same time. And that's why repentance is called turning directions. I stop doing that, and I start doing this. And God says when that is true and genuine in your life, in your church, in your family, in the nation. God promises to answer that cry for help and heal the land, to bring revival and to bring repentance. So if you see a nation, a family, or a church going awry, what you need to do is you need to call out and say, God, help us change what we're doing. Not just admit what you're doing is wrong, but change it for the good. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the words of conviction, the words of confession, the words of repentance. And Father, thank you at times for hitting us over the head with this sledgehammer of responsibility. Even though, Father, we sometimes assume that you will always hear us, answer us, and deliver us, we know, Father, that we have a responsibility to turn from evil and to turn to righteousness. Help us, Father, as a nation to turn from our evil and wicked ways and to turn to you, the God of life, God of love, the only God who truly hears and answers us. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in worship.